Welcome to the Conversion Tracking Playbook, where we share how to overcome tracking challenges that e-commerce brands face today and real-world examples of transforming data into insights. Welcome back to another episode of the Conversion Tracking Playbook. You have Brad and John here and a two-time guest, Ben Zettler. If you haven't listened to Ben's first episode, we were just chatting about it. It was one of our better performing episodes. It was all about email. So just, I think it was top 10 tips to make more money at every email today. It was, we went through segmentation and flows and holiday flows and Black Friday tips. Very, very tactical. So I'll link that in the show notes. So you can check that one out if you have not listened to it yet. Today, we have a variety of topics. We just got done talking about what everyone is going to need to do about iOS 17 and the new Facebook pixel that's rolling out. So we're not going to share all that at the beginning of this episode, but if you wait until the end, we'll share. Just kidding. Just kidding. I'm joking around because that's I was telling Ben, that's where my head is at today is in the in the depths of some of these new announcements. But anyways, jokes aside, let's just jump into it. Ben, maybe just a quick reminder for everyone listening, who you are, what you do, and we'll we'll dive right in. Yeah, love it. No, happy to be here again. Appreciate you guys you know, having me on. And I, I guess that means that things went well last time. So hopefully this time. Yeah, well, we got a book with your agent. We need to you know, book a recurring one with your agent. No, I'm, I, I for, for folks that are listening, my name is Ben Zettler. My, my agency, Ben Zettler Digital, it covers really all things e-commerce, the merchants that we work with, but with a core focus on site optimization, on retention-focused marketing, and also advertising optimization. We're longstanding partners in the Shopify ecosystem, and Clavio, and Meta, and you know we we have a lot of fun with this stuff. So I'm happy to jam out with you guys today. Awesome! Check out Ben. Ben does amazing work. We have the luxury of having many mutual brand customers. So with that, let's just dive right into it. Seeing as how you do work with a variety of brands, and I think a variety you you don't focus just on a single vertical, correct? So you, do you have a variety of verticals? Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, you know, sometimes I get pinned as a sports guy because we, we've had the good fortune of working with you know, a bunch of different athletes and also e-commerce. Mariano Rivera, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's always a good one. Always a good name. So we, sometimes we get pinned as that, but really we, we've been fortunate to work with a bunch of different types of businesses across all different types of industries. And a lot of what we do is, is really applicable. But for any type of business, you know, whether you're selling workout supplements or if you're selling t-shirts or jewelry or bedding or really anything else. Yeah. So John, do you want to tee this first question up just to get us get us going today? Yeah, sure. Ben, you have you have basically a dream list of clients, I would say. My favorite being Wu-Tang Clan. And I think working with such a wide variety of people I'm really curious, and I know this is this is officially a can of worms, but kind of like a pet topic of both Brad and I lately. What knowledge is missing from merchants that really like has a big impact on their performance? So obviously, when you work with them, you bring you're very technical and you grill us a lot when we talk to you. But what's what's missing in the merchant database of knowledge typically that could help them a lot? Hundred percent. I think there's a few different things. One thing that comes to mind is because I, I posted about this on LinkedIn a couple of days ago, where I get questions. Let's say, for example, a merchant comes to us and says, "Hey, we want help with Clavio. You know, it's currently twenty percent of our monthly revenue. How can you double that to forty percent?" 
And when I hear that from a merchant, and that's just, again, one example, but when I hear that, it, it's kind of, I understand why they ask that question. What they're really asking is, you know, how can you help us make more money with our, our Clavio, so with our email or SMS? But it's a little bit narrow and, and siloed. They're not really looking at their marketing holistically across, you know, different channels because, yeah, sure, there's ways that we could, you know, kind of not inflate with false sales, but inflate in terms of the tactics that we take to have email make up a very large percentage of the business. But is it ultimately growing the business is a totally different question. So what I see a lot of businesses, and this is across different industries, across sizes, you know, folks that are in complete startup mode and, you know, some of the, you know, I guess you could call it bigger names or bigger, bigger logos that we've, we've been able to work with. I see pretty consistently across the table that they're just not necessarily looking at performance holistically and relying on things like in-platform metrics and reporting to make decisions about the business. And that's where you know, somewhat of a unified understanding of you know, what levers are pulling what, whether that's just Google Analytics or whether that's you know, reporting tools like Audacity or something like that. Like having some sort of central understanding, whether you're using a platform to report on it or if you're just as a brand operator thinking about, okay, if I spend this in advertising and what's that ultimately going to impact you know, for the actual sales of the company, like sometimes it's as simple as that of merchants, not even you know, thinking about it from that angle. That's what I see a lot of like missing pieces. Now, certainly like there's also plenty of brands that do a very good job of kind of tracking on that information and understanding what KPIs they're, they're looking for and knowing, okay, if we're spending a hundred dollars to acquire a customer, that's you know, puts us in the green over the course of six months with the first two, three purchases that are making. Okay, let's let's amp up that ad spend what we're running and keep going. But others are just like kind of throwing money out the window. Okay, we spend five thousand a month in Facebook ads and we're doing this with Google ads and we're, you know, posting this content on our Instagram page. We don't know if it's doing anything. And you know, we send batch and blast emails. And, you know, we just kind of hope that some people come back to us and, and buy something. So it's just kind of like this, to answer your question, like kind of this lack of, of sort of cohesive understanding of all the different levers and channels of the business or holistic thinking when it comes to, uh, you know, making better decisions. That begs one question. It begs one question. Can you do that in GA4? Can you get that holistic view in GA4 today? I don't know. I mean, Brad, you might be better to answer that question than I am. <laughs> GA4, never heard of it. You know, I, I don't know. Like I, I myself, you know, kind of being in the position that I'm in, like have kind of poked around with, with GA4, but not nearly, I'd say enough, to be honest, to have like a really clear understanding of how we can best leverage it as a tool for the clients that we work with. So I guess it's a maybe, I don't know. <laughs> You know, the thing that you're always missing too are like, you know, things like, you know, Shopify specific data and really understanding like new versus returning customer and some things that like some of these other platforms can can indeed help uncover, like without even need, needing to know like the ins and outs of GA4. You know, it's always going to be a tool to, you know, you would hope once people have a better understanding of it, myself included, a tool to understand like kind of barometer where the business is at. But but yeah, always having just kind of this like deeper level of reporting and understanding of 
you know, LTV and what, where users are renting, entering in from on their first order, but then, you know, what are they doing for second, third, fourth purchase? Yeah, it's going to be more applicable, I'd say for sure, to like businesses that, you know, if it's a consumable product or just, you know, high rate of repeat purchase or something like that. But GA4, I don't know. <laughs> Today, the answer is no. The answer to your question, yeah, is, is no. But but even just more generally, I I don't I don't have enough of an understanding yet, to be honest. Yeah, I think the way I, I think about the answer to this, and John and, and Ben's obviously much more experienced. And this is his world more than more than it is mine. But if you go up to thirty thousand foot view, how much am I making per month? How much am I spending on ad spend? What's the profitability? Are those ratios getting better or worse? Once you understand that, then start like the new versus returning and look in those cohorts and then seeing, okay, where, if I'm performing better, where is it coming from? If I'm performing worse, where, what's, what am I losing out on? Am I not getting repeat purchase rate that I had last year? All of those, like, could you in theory get those questions in GA4? Actually, I don't think, I don't think you could. And that, that, that would, it would be way too complicated to try to do that today than just using some other, other tools and solutions, whether it's Audacity, whether it's, you know, myriad of other other options out there that brands could try so that's that's my thought i do have a question though related to this and skill set i'm going to use the two-word acronym ai and hopefully it does 50 of the listeners don't just drop off now i'm curious how much that is coming up in conversations with your customers ben with with your partners honestly it hasn't been as much as i would have expected given like how much everybody's been talking about it over the last few months that said there have been merchants that have come to us like for more of a more of a content focus. You know, if let's say we're we're managing organic social and you know, caption writing or or email writing, just copy that should be contained within in those those messages, or even in paid ads as well. We've had a few clients that's, that have asked, you know, oh, why don't we leverage, you know, copy AI or chat GPT to like craft some messaging and there are some instances where we've started to use it a bit, but you know that too is like there's there are so many tools out there that in theory could you know help a business. What's unique for us, at least in terms of how we operate, because we're working with such of a variety of different businesses at different levels of scale and different scope of services and things like that. You know, I don't think I myself have not centered my head around like how we can best leverage. AI tools to make what we do as efficient as it could be. But I can definitely see value for like brand operators who are within the same type of environment every day that have a, a different level of consistency maybe than what we do that could maybe leverage it better. That said, like, you know, things to watch out for is like writing a, a blog solely on AI, even if you refine it with different prompts and, you know, Okay, rewrite this with enhanced language. Like it's still you, you can tell pretty quickly when something is not written by a human. Still, I mean, as amazing as like all the tooling is and and the different functions that are now out there that didn't exist literally months ago. But you got to find a way to like balance it. I mean, you, you, there there is this this idea that a human should be still curating different things. But as far as like making like busy work more efficient and being able to pull information and do things like that, then, you know, yeah, go crazy. Yeah, do as much as you can. Yeah. I had two, two recent stories. So I was at a mastermind a couple of weeks ago and I learned about a pretty, pretty big brand. I won't name the name, but 
they're pro- between 50 and 100 million, might be a little, a little less, but call it 30 to, to 100, some, somewhere in that range. They built their own AI bot, however you want to call it, but their own utility where it was they trained it with all of their historical customer tickets, which is tens of thousands, so a lot. They trained th- this bot on just their data, hooked it up to their all of their current support tickets, and all it was doing, it was it was processing the request and writing the prompt or the response in chat or email right away based on the trained, based on the the trained model. And they had the option to basically just auto send the response or just tee it up for someone in support to basically do an 80%, 90% QA and modify it. I, I can't recall the exact stats, but it was when I, the gentleman was explaining this to me, it was mind boggling, just their core CS stats of how just more efficient. So they became more efficient, obviously cost efficient and a better customer experience. So I I think there's, I don't see as much operationally talked about. And it's something that John knows, at least on the LLVAR side of, and we've been looking more at that more internal than like an external AI product as as part of LLVAR. But I think there's a lot of that in e-com that might, might catch up in the coming months as seems like it's an arms race and there's so many they're pushing but that was one interesting use case one other really quick one somebody actually interviewed recently they just want to test a new store they they want more of the content creation styles so they created i don't know like four in the hundreds of articles just through ai just one person they did it i don't know how long it was hours and probably some curation as well but just that alone, they spun up this new skincare brand and the brand is getting already getting organic purchases just from from that content. Now I'm 100% with you, it's more the, that's that's gonna have a very short shelf life, but it was interesting to see someone actually put that use case. Can you actually draw in traffic and sell, sell people based on content that you aren't creating and convince them to buy in a first or second visit? Yeah, it's super interesting, especially the customer service one. We actually do have a client that is in the middle of something exactly like that. They, I think, are just gonna be launching it next week, but essentially the same exact thing. They took all of their support tickets and were able to develop, you know, response or, or the, the, the tool itself was able to develop responses to you know, common questions. And the idea being like, make the customer service process more efficient for internal operations, also for users getting answers to the questions that they want. And at the end of the day, there are one person customer service team that's going to do eight figures of business this year. So that use case is pretty interesting when you have that information that can that that can enhance what the the tool may ultimately serve to a customer so i'm excited to see how that one goes yeah nice let's pivot over and get back into ecom land and specifically with segmentation clavio facebook john what are we chatting about next yeah ben i i wonder there's this ethos that's kind of i've heard many times where people are talking about doing broad targeting on ads versus doing like interest-based targeting. And it seems to be picking up steam. I've, I've been seeing it around for like maybe two or three years now. I'm curious, you guys do a decent amount of paid ads. I'm curious your thoughts on this whole philosophy. You know what? We That's the majority of what we do when we're running advertising for a merchant at this point, especially over the last year or so, you know, post iOS 14.5 and how everything has gone in the last two years. Most prospecting campaigns, so the the you know, kind of top of funnel advertising, going to cold traffic, outside of like if there's specific parameters that we need to fall within, like let's say 
client ships only to certain states or whatever it might be, or if the content for whatever reason is specifically tailored to men versus women or again, location. Other than that, we pretty much leave everything broad for mo- in most cases, not all, but I'd say 80% maybe of, of sort of that prospecting advertising that we're, we're spending dollars on for merchants. You know, the theory there being, okay, Facebook has limited data relative to what it had a few years ago. Give the algorithm the, the widest net to find users that are likely to complete an action that you are optimizing that ad for. So for the, you know, the purchase action that you're looking to you know, drive users towards, Facebook's going to assess, okay, who are the users that have actually made a purchase action that we can read that ultimately that information gets enhanced by Elevar if someone's using Elevar and then, you know, kind of make its own decision of who to serve that ad to, even when you're setting, even when you're setting an ad set to broad targeting. So, you know, like, and, and taking that a step further, thinking about like, okay, before, if you were really hard on, let's say, interest-based targeting and, you know, every, which we were, like with any ads that we would run for merchants, like, you know, if we're not using a lookalike audience, then we're using interest-based targeting. And so now those interests are a bit harder to identify because there's less data and there's also different interest categories that Facebook has pulled out from being, you know, even indexed in their system. And we've, we've tested both, like kind of both routes where you are kind of narrowing further to a group of users and others where you're just going completely broad. And in almost all cases, the broad, broad wins out. And so that's, that's just typically what we do. And, and the, the more frequent types of changes are like just creative iterations, you know, cycling in new content to test performance and then for stuff that does perform well over a certain period of time, keeping that kind of in a, an evergreen type of ad set. But yeah, the broad thing's interesting because it kind of like, you know, in theory goes against what sounds like it would make sense. But but I mean so far, so far so good across you know different different types of clients, different types of products, different types of industries, things like that. I've heard the same thing over and over again that that it that it is more successful. And it, it just like you said, it's doesn't make a lot of sense because you think if you're selling, I don't know, women's clothing, it would make sense to target women. And maybe maybe you still do. Maybe there is that level of targeting. But I've heard that even that doesn't make sense. And the theory here is that interest-based targeting or any targeting at all just is more expensive on Facebook, right? And it in when it all comes out and nets out, it, it just doesn't make sense to do. Yeah. And actually, what you just said kind of hit on something that we used to do, but the same type of concept applies. So, you know, back when in, interest-based targeting really had a high level of impact, there there used to be a, a tool, and of course, I'm already forgetting the name of it because it's been gone now for some time and I haven't used it in a few years. But inside of Facebook, you could look up groups of interests based on a certain interest and you could see like the affinity to that interest. So if I searched I was using this example from from back in my days working at Steiner Sports, Steiner being a memorabilia company. And so, you know, for us, kind of like a natural, a natural setup for leveraging interest-based targeting and advertising. You know, if you're selling a, I, well, I can't say that necessarily now anymore because now he's going to be playing for the Jets, but for a, an Aaron Rodgers, let's say Green Bay Packers helmet, okay, how am I going to want to sell that with advertising? I'm going to target fans of the Green Bay Packers. That would be sort of like the, the first level of thinking, but 
you go a step further and, and you know, use Facebook's tool, which again, I forget the name, and uh, Audience Insights, that's what it was. And you enter in Green Bay Packers, and then they'll spit back a list of you know, 10, 20 other pages, so other, th- other topics or other pages that users are interested in with high affinity scores to the Green Bay Packers. So other pages that you know, the followers are kind of made up of the roughly same group of people. So we would build interest-based audiences using those those groups. So instead of just targeting Green Bay Packers, you enter Green Bay Packers, then you would create a group of the Packers, the local sports station, Cheez-Its, for whatever reason, people that like the Packers like Cheez-Its, Target department stores, and a whole bunch of others that were in that list. And there you're, you're kind of narrowing the focus with certain interests, but you're casting the net sort of wide enough that you're giving the Facebook algorithm room to, to bid against less frequently bid against terms. And then therefore costs can theoretically go down. So now it's kind of like, it's almost like the same thing. And, and the thing that sparked me from what you said before that, you know, you're just—it's going like super broad, super wide, not narrowing to any interest. But in theory, you're just—you're just kind of letting Facebook work its magic to identify the users that, in theory, may make most sense to you know, ultimately serve that ad to. And in most cases, you know, you give the algorithm enough time to run, like you run, run those ads for enough time that it, it works out. Do you see the same thing moving to email, SMS, where instead of creating all of these flows manually and trying to go maybe a little bit deeper on personalized flows, but do you see this in the future, near future for email and SMS, where it's kind of like you set your goal for the fl- workflow or whatever whatever you're doing in the combination of email and SMS, and you just let Clavio or others just figure it out for you? Maybe. I say maybe because there's still data to be had through you know purchase history and information that users give to you directly about you know what their preferences are that can help to support campaigns that you might send or or flows that you might might create and dictate within those flows like you know who should receive what but there's also tools that are out there that can you know, theoretically personalize the experience a bit further and that just be you know triggered events that get in, sent into Clavio and then send a message with some dynamic information i've tested it with a few different clients a few different platforms that uh, essentially, the way I view it, it's kind of like a step further than like Clavio has a metric for expected next order date. It's kind of along those lines. It's it's understanding okay, what what actions have these users taken? So essentially, you know, what purchases have these users made, or what information do we have about them, and when are they most likely to purchase, and what are they most likely to purchase? So the when of, okay, when are we going to trigger this message? When are we going to trigger this event? And then when that event is triggered, what information should be displayed in that message? So yeah, I think there's going to be more tools that kind of come into play like this. was chatting with the founders of another tool. I, I won't, I'm not naming these specifically only because I don't have, I don't think I have enough experience with them and to know like the effectiveness of the results and, and all that. But founders of a tool I was talking to recently that their, their goal is to, make your Clavio spend more efficient. So identifying, you know, sort of the obvious like bounced user addresses and things like that that you can suppress. But then sort of the next step to their tool is identifying, right, these are users that are not going to buy right now, but they might buy around the holidays, just for example. 
And so an automated process theoretically of suppressing them so you can you know, lower your clavio bill so you're not sending to as many users, but then unsuppress those users. And then in theory, like I'm just thinking, you know, more in general, like, okay, then the tools that, you know, can serve automated messaging to users like that. So yeah, I mean, there's going to be some more of that to some degree, but I don't think that it's going to like completely go away of like manual curation and, you know, brand operators and agencies having to decide what information and what content is going to be sent to a particular set of users, especially because there's just so much information that you could bring in to email, like different than advertising, where you could know, okay, the users that have purchased X five times and we're releasing this new product that we've found like complements, you know, product X very well and sending that, that campaign. Like, there's still going to be that manual element too. I could go off on a tangent on that one, but I'll, I won't. <laughs> John, do you want to, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to step one foot in the tangent land. Clavio's CDP announcement that I think it's almost going on two years, right? It's getting up there. Yeah. You probably have more of the knowledge of where that is. Like, can brands actively spin that up today? Or just, can they get that up and running if anybody wants to pay for it and license it, et cetera, could they get up and running? There's things that I know that I cannot say that, that, that like brands that are thinking about things like that, I think should be, you know, will be happy. Yeah. Yeah. To me, that's, that's the natural when they've initially announced that and again, heard, heard some various whispers here and there over the last year or so, but that's that is access to such a robust large data set outside of just behavior activity or flow activity where that type of data underneath an umbrella for an entire brand so support tickets and everything else that different apps or or solutions are collecting they have access to all that then they just make this type of prediction engine much more powerful and robust and yeah you know if like all right this guy whatever he, he, he runs marathons or he said he was running a marathon last time we asked him in a post-purchase survey. So he's going to buy something every new pair of shoes every six months or whatever it might be. And we need to tee that up because shoes only running shoes only last five months or I just see, feel like that, that is natural as a next step. But anyways, so I was going to, I was going to dabble a foot in there just to close that loop in my brain. All right. So tactics, I always like talking tactics, John, what's, what do we got? What do we got here? Yeah, I was just going to ask, there's always, just like the, you know, advertising broad, there's always this stuff that circles around the internet on what's working and what's not. And and you see merchants using certain things that are brand new and also that may seem slightly out of date. So I'm just curious, like, do you, for example, like the A-B test, like switch your, your buy button from red to blue, you know, like all that stuff that was five years ago that probably... Does it matter if your ad to cart button is is clear to see? I'm just wondering if you see with the broad view that you have stuff that people are doing that they maybe shouldn't be doing anymore or or things they should be doing they're not doing. Yeah, a couple that I'm thinking about, you know, subject line A-B tests where you're you're judging the winner on open rate after, you know, two, three hours for an email, for example. The, the value of that is somewhat limited for a couple of reasons, mainly because of the lack of clarity around like who's actually opening emails. So I know you guys know, but, but just for anybody listening that isn't aware, the post iOS 15 
Apple devices no longer allow ESPs to you know, accurately read open rate, and they send an estimated metric back to you know, the Clavios, the Amisens, the, the list tracks of the world, that, hey, this user that uses Apple Mail opened this email, even if maybe they didn't, which, you know, I, I talk to a lot of merchants all the time that, you know, hey, they're looking for help with Clavio, they're looking for help, you know, with, you know, making more money with their email marketing. And we'll talk about that. And A, they're just completely, you know, just not aware of that. And B, like the thing that I'll always you know, show them as an example of the impact is like, okay, look back at your, your open rates, you know, month to month from October 2021 when that was released onward. And you'll see a gradual increase in open rates over that time period. And so open rates are basically completely irrelevant metric now. And, you know, then you have folks that are A-B testing subject lines and, you know, judging the success of it based on, you know, what the open rate was. And so there's no real understanding of, like, what content actually made sense. But the second piece to it, or I shouldn't say made sense, but but made an impact. But the second piece is, you know, what what are the changes that are being tested? Like the the presence of an emoji versus not having an emoji in the subject line, for example. And sure, maybe having an emoji has some level of impact. Maybe it doesn't. But really shifting like the messaging entirely, whether it's a subject line test, which again, I'd recommend less of because of the whole first reason. But even if it's the content of an email, like, yeah, the, the, some of the more subtle design elements and whether that's email, whether that's an ad, whether that's uh, on-site content, you know, the, the change of a button color, It'll have maybe some impact, but you know, when are you going to get to a certain level of scale that you can really understand whether or not it had an impact? Like you need, you need to be a, like a very large brand in terms of like customer volume and order volume to like really understand it. But really, you should be focused on the messaging itself and and what is it that you're focusing on? Are you talking about? You know the the specific benefits to a product, like if it's a you know a health product, a supplement, something like that. Are you talking about? Or are you displaying like lifestyle imagery of somebody working out and drinking the drink, whatever it is? You know, different than like listing off the benefits and the problems that it solves. Like you know, real content differentiation. Like those are things that are, I'd say, worthy of testing. And again, that's. That applies to email. That applies to advertising. That applies to on-site work. Because I see, I see brands all the time that are testing, and I put it in air quotes because they're not really doing anything of statistical significance, and really they're just adding more work to what they're doing, and it's just slowing them down. Like I'd much rather, instead of let's say creating two different versions of an email that's going to go to half an audience and or a quarter of an audience and a quarter of an audience and the rest go to half an audience, like. I'd rather just have two different email campaigns that go on two different days that are two different opportunities to theoretically like drive revenue. So in that sense, like there's ways I think you can be a little bit more efficient with how you operate. Again, agency side, brand side, and avoid like thinking that you're doing something impactful, but instead really just kind of wasting time. Just to interrupt on that last point, is that because so the two send two campaigns instead of A B testing one, is that because Generally speaking, if you send four emails per week versus six emails per week or seven emails per week, you don't see a substantial change in unsubscribes. So your list, you're not, your list isn't compressing by sending 
20% more emails per week? For the most part, depends on who you're targeting, for sure. Because that's a, that's a whole nother thing that I see all the time, too, for, for merchants that we talk to about, oh, yeah, we just do, you know, batch and blast. And we have 100,000 people on our list. And every 100,000 users, they, they receive every email. You'd be, I, I, well, I'm shocked myself when I see it, but you'd be surprised how many brands are doing that. And so really refining who the recipients are of different messaging. And, and sure, there's going to be plenty of users that are fairly engaged. They purchase fairly often and they click fairly often. They're going to receive pretty much every campaign. But also making sure that you're valuing exclusions is important as you're, you're valuing in- inclusion. So, you know, the bounced addresses that are still subscribed that shouldn't be receiving messaging or, you know, the users that, okay, they just purchased, let's say in the last seven days, do they need to receive that email? Okay, making sure those are excluded. So all of those, yeah, when, when you're keeping that in control, then you can generally do okay with a, a somewhat higher volume of sending to engaged users and not really have a, too much of a negative impact, if any at all, on, on actual list size, list growth, user children, all that. Yeah. That would be a good, probably a good episode on its own is just audience types, ways to segment exclusion type audiences, just like a quick top 10 learning lessons uh, or just quick tips. I imagine many, many might like that, especially going into our favorite Q4. All right. I think we got, we got time for one more, one more quick topic, John, or actually Ben, you, you got the list. You pick one. Wh- which one do you want since we got a few minutes? You know, the iOS changes are all super interesting, you know, because it's a similar kind of thing. There's a lot of confusion around what the actual impact is going to be. Which version? The iOS 15, 16? So I guess, I guess iOS 17 now, like the, the newest stuff, you know, how you guys noted here, like the potential impact, like on URL parameters being blocked. From my understanding of it, and again, I'm, I'm fairly green on this. You might know more than I like, you know, that it, it is only going to have an impact if users are using a private browser. But I mean, do I have that right? Is that correct? As of June 20th, 2023. <laughs> that piece itself, that'll be interesting to some degree, right? Like the, this all also goes back to like, okay, how are, how are brands actually reporting on performance and, you know, the, the tools that they're using and, you know, it, it all goes back to one thing. Like somebody posted on like LinkedIn or Twitter a couple of weeks ago, I forget who it was like, you know, something about like, you know, what metrics do you look at when evaluating like performance of whether it was advertising or just the business overall? And I replied back, I was like, well, how much money did you make? And, and you know, what was your profit? That's ultimately the thing that people need to be thinking about. And it's going to get harder to understand, okay, what are the different levers maybe that are, are pushing that? But, but yeah, it is interesting. And I don't think we have all the answers of like, okay, how is that going to impact, you know, the content that we publish and the messages that get sent and the ads that we run? And, you know, I think in some ways, and I'm just sort of like, this is just off, off the cuff, off the top of my head right now, based on this conversation, like we're, we're already kind of doing this with a lot of clients that we work with of, you know, let's say for email simplification of email content, reduction of the numbers of calls to action that are contained within a message and really honing in on, you know, moving users to a very specific call to action. You know, go to this product because this product is new and this is where you go to buy that product on this one link that you can see in this one email. 
So that in itself, if we think about like, all right, if there's, I don't know, if there's less information that we have around like URL parameters and, you know, what, what was that session driven by, you know, for that on that site or on that page on that link? At the very least, if you're in the weeds of it all, like kind of every day, you'll be able to still see the impact of different tools, even if some of that data is stripped away. So maybe that's a trend. I don't know. Like, I don't want to say I'm like calling it now, but you know, simplification of content certainly might be a a way that folks get around that. Which I think there's a, many other reasons why you should ultimately be thinking that way anyway. You know, to really drive users to like one singular thing. Because when you do have data, there's not necessarily a need to do the batch and blast to reach this wide set of users that a certain piece of information may not be applicable. So I don't know, like anything else, it's like, okay, the world's ending and then, you know, we'll figure it out. And then the next thing that Apple releases, then the world's going to end again. So, yeah. Yeah. One, one interesting thing or interesting work, I wouldn't call it a workaround, but coming full cycle would be, let's just say we live in a world today where there's no query parameters, no tracking parameters. Everything's getting, if it's getting stripped out of 40% of your traffic, then it essentially it makes it analyzing the other 60% essentially worthless, in my opinion. The water would be way too muddy. So if you, if we take the opposite angle of the content, making content more simple is, okay, now we need, we need custom landing pages. So we're going to use AI to spin up all these unique landing pages that are, you know, just they're different URLs. There's no query parameters. And then these have to get plugged into my Klaviyo emails or SMS flows. Then this is where GA4 could come into play is based on a landing page, you're still going to get the refer, which would be Klaviyo or Attentive or wherever, whatever the refer is. And then use some sort of rewriting of if you want to get that complex of, okay, if they land on landing page dash A, then, you know, the source medium campaign type is going to be this or whatever it might be. So that gets more on, on into our world, but. Yeah, there's hundred percent like ways to do that. And I think that's a really good idea. Obviously like a limited number of brands are going to do it. Unless it's easy, unless you can click the easy button. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. Now there's ways like, you know, I see it too, like a lot with merchants, like on the Shopify side, you know, when you think about like landing page creation, there's a, a lot of things that I see a lot of brands not doing that they could do. That, you know, they don't, they don't create landing pages and they're just directing users to the homepage or they're just directing users to a collection page. Like, I guess in theory, even with that example, like, you know, you could have, let's say new product launch A and you have a landing page for that. And if you wanted to create different pages so that you could tie a URL to the specific channel that you're using, like the actual doing of that is relatively low lift on the Shopify side. Like, just a duplication of you know page template. You're creating a you know creating a page, assigning the template to it. Okay, there you go. Now you have these separate landing pages, all of the same content. You don't have to rebuild each one. Um, and yeah, it's just a matter of like whether or not you know brands will actually do it. The cool thing about ecom is that you can start a really small store and grow, you know, essentially infinitely. You can grow a really big business for some from something really small. And I think the moral of the story with all this stuff is it's going to get harder and harder. Like sophisticated brands are going to be able to figure it out. We talked about a couple ways last week uh, how for sure there's going to be a ways around this. But it's it's discouraging because like the small stores are going to get less visibility. And those guys, it's going to be harder to grow. And that's that's not great. I don't love that. 
which is which is exactly what happened with iOS 14.5. Like all the brands that were able to you know, really build their businesses off of running Facebook and Instagram advertising that you know, then you know, with their budgets were kind of, you know, left left in the dust relative to bigger brands that had the budgets that could still get, you know, the right data flowing into their systems so that they could operate efficiently. Yeah, it's a great point. It, it, it just like then, you know, even now it's going to just really mean ultimately the, the smaller business, the little guy is kind of you know, hurt a little more than the bigger brands. Elvar, that's what we're here for to do as much as we can. <laughs> All right, Ben. Well, thanks for joining. Where can people get in touch with you? Yeah. I, if they follow on, on social for me personally, like Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram at Ben Zettler, benzettler.com is the agency website that you know, highlights a lot of what we do. If anybody's interested in a in conversation, but, but yeah, no, thank you guys for, for having me on. You know, hopefully, hopefully people get to this point that we're talking right now that they watch through the end. We have more than one listener. I promise. Uh, <laughs> no, but this has been good. Thank, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Did you enjoy today's episode? If so, we release two new episodes per week. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else that you subscribe and listen to your podcasts. I also have a favor to ask. I'd really appreciate if you could leave a comment or a review so I can learn exactly how to improve future episodes for you. And last but not least, if you want to connect with me, find me on LinkedIn by searching Brad Redding at Elevar. That's E-L-E-V-A-R. Or you can DM me on Twitter. My handle is I am Brad Redding. I look forward to connecting with you. Thanks again. Thanks again.